0: If you don't know who I am, my name is Josh Laxton. Um, I actually work at the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center and have done so since January of last year. But this past week was interesting because uh, I have been kind of preaching um, occasionally at Wheaton Bible and here at Tri-Village, and we have dtr which means define the relationship this past week. And so I am now the young adults pastor and a teaching pastor at Wheaton Bible part-time. So... It is definitely an honor to serve in that capacity. Uh, I've been inter- interacting and engaging with young adults during the pandemic. So if you are a young adult or you are a young adult listening online, I'd love to connect with you. So just kind of I would say first and foremost, probably just go to our Facebook page and you can kind of keep up date, kind of with what we're doing. But we are, ge- you know, kind of gearing up. Over the course of the next month or so to kind of uh, really do some things in the fall to kind of uh, still minister and do mission in the midst of a pandemic. What crazy times we live in, huh? So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 19 or you can scroll there or click on Psalm 19. We are in this series, The Invincible Church. Now, when I think of the word invincible, I think of Marvel Avengers. I mean, that's just that's just who I think of because uh, you 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 can't kill the Avengers. Except if you watch Endgame, which I'm, you know, I know you're probably like, uh, you know, I haven't watched Endgame, Josh. Well, hey, I, I, didn't, I didn't tell you who, but, but I, I still think of Marvel Avengers when I think of the word invincible. Why? Because Marvel Avengers are really indestructible. You can't beat them. You can't stop them. You can't defeat them. And that's the church. You, you, you can't stop the church. You can't beat the church. It doesn't matter even if you are the devil self. You cannot beat the church. Now, why is that? Well, it's not because of really how special the church is in and of herself. It's not because of how powerful the church is in and of herself. No, the reason why you cannot stop the church is because whose the church is. The church is Jesus's. And see, Jesus was sent by the Father because the Father loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus. Uh, Jesus loved us so much that he went to the cross to die for our sin, to die in our place. He died. He rose again. And then 40 days later, guess what he did? He sent his spirit to indwell us, to empower us, to live for him. See, that's the reason why the church is invincible. The church is undefeatable because of who's in us and whose we are. That's why we are invincible. And so as we have been in this series, we have seen how an invincible church worships, prays, And gathers. Like, so if the church wants to be invincible, it's not like you just exist and you are invincible. No, there are some things that we do that we engage in so that we might tap into the power, the invincible power, right? So we're gonna pray, we're gonna worship, we're going to gather corporately. Well, today, if we want to be an invincible church, we're going to need to hear. Or better yet, listen. Because there is a distinction. You can hear noises, but not do anything. But we want to listen to the Word, as James would say, and not deceive ourselves, but we want to do what the Word says. So if you're ready for the main point, say you're ready. Here's the main point that we will look at this morning. To live the life we were created to live, we will have to listen to the creator of life. And so I'm gonna apply it to Tri Village. To live the life Tri Village was created to live, she will have to listen to the creator of life. Like if you want, if you want to tap into what life is all about, you need to listen to the creator of life. Now let me ask you this question: how many of you in here and listening? Online, you love board games. Anybody? Anybody love board games? Okay. I didn't say card games, but board games, because it's a little bit different, you know. Uh, Now, in the pandemic, early on, the Laxton family, at least Joni and I, and my family is with me here today, uh, we, we started playing board games, namely Sequence. Now, I actually loved Sequence early on, because I dominated Sequence, but then Joni started winning. All the time, and then guess what happens when you start beating me regularly in my house? I just give up and I don't play anymore. But but we 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 act, we we do love board games. Now I brought I brought two board games with us with me today that you will find in the the Laxton House: uh, 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 Settlers of Catan or Catan, however you want to say it. And uh, the reason why I brought Settlers is because. Uh, We've had this game for a while, and we haven't opened it. Now, I'll come back to that in a second, but the other one is the game of life. And it was only appropriate, right, since we're talking about, you know, living life according to its design, you need to listen to the creator of life. It was only appropriate to bring this game with us because I would say that every single human being, they've tried to figure out the game of life. And... and The thing about uh, board games, if you're going to play the board game right, you need to understand its objective, and you need to understand the rules. Like, if you don't know the objective and you don't know the rules, you're not going to be able to play the game. Now, here's what's interesting in the Laxton household: if 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 we've never played a game before, now that's a picture because we've all been there. Maybe you've been over at someone's house, you've never played a game. What typically happens when you sit around the table to play the game for the first time? Someone reads the instructions. Now, just here's a question. What gender is the person who who normally reads the instructions? Women. Women, they want to know the instructions. Now, men, on the other hand... Here's how we typically respond. Oh, well, come on, come on. Let's just play the game. We'll learn as we go. That, that, that's, that, well, that's at least what happens in the Laxton house. Like, Joni's like, no, we're going to read the instructions. And I'm like, oh, this is boring. You, you know, I don't want to read the instructions. I just want to play the game. But, but here's the thing. You, you have to read the instructions. You've got to know what you're playing so that you can participate effectively. Now, here's what I believe. I believe the same is true for life. Like, if we really are going to live out this life that we have been given, we really are going to need to listen to. Whoever has the objective, whoever has the instructions, whoever has the rules, like if we're going to be effective at living out life in all areas, in all spheres of life, we need to find someone who has created, who has designed life, and that person is God. That person is Jesus. So just as every board game has a designer and a creator, our life has a designer, has a creator has given us rules, has given us instructions so that we might flourish, so that we might win, if you will, at life. Now, here's what's interesting. Prior to the Enlightenment that took root in the 18th century, most Western culture believed that. They at least believed that there was a God who created life, and we need to listen to him in order to live out this life. But then the Enlightenment happened in the 18th century, particularly in the West. And these philosophers said, you know what? We we don't really need God anymore because guess what we have? We have reason and we have science. And because of our reason and our intellect and our creativity and because of science, we can eliminate all ills in this world and we can create a utopia of a society. Now, here's the thing about the Enlightenment. Um, we're still waiting uh, on, on that to happen because the Enlightenment science and reason and intellect and man's ingenuity, it didn't rid all of the ills of society. It actually created more. Now, sure, it solved some medical things, and sure, we learned some things, and we grew in some areas, but uh, we still have war. We, we don't have world peace. We still have death. Uh, we still have racism. We still have all of these things that the Enlightenment promised to rid us of, and we are still waiting. Now, he, he, here's the other thing, though. Now we live in what philosophers say is a post-Enlightenment era. Now, he, he, here's the thing about post-Enlightenment. Uh, we no longer center life around reason And science, we use those things. But now in a post-enlightenment era, we center life around our feelings and emotions. Like it's all about the individual, the autonomous self. And so each human gets to make up his or her own rule book instruction manual based upon how they feel or based upon what they want. Now now think about it. Both the enlightenment and the post-enlightenment it's severely, they both are severely flawed. Why? Because science and reason are only tools. They're only tools to help us make sense of life. To help us understand life. They were never meant to be the anchor of life. They never, they never were meant to be the origin of life. And then feelings and emotions, yes, they're they're part of what it means to be human. They're just not the center of what it means to be human. And so could it be that the reason why our world is so messed up is because we are trying to make our objective in life or our objectives in life and the rules and the instructions of life based upon something that was never meant to be? Could could it be that the reason why we are in the state we are in is because we have forgotten the Creator who spoke and who is speaking to us today? Now, let me go back to the the settlers uh, game that we have never opened. Um, And I will tell you why we have not opened it, because... um, I've heard that it is a very difficult game, and it can be very complex. And to sit there and try to listen (laughs) and try to understand the complexity, I'm just like, I just don't have the time. Could it be that the reason why people are neglecting God's Word, and there are other reasons, and I'll share those in just a few moments, But could it be the reason why people don't open up God's Word anymore is because they think it's too complex? It's too demanding. It's too time-consuming. And so they leave the Word packaged up, never to open and to unveil the life they were meant to live. Could it be? Could it be? So that's where Psalm 19 enters into our discussion today. So Psalm 19, will you stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? C.S. Lewis, he said this about Psalm 19. It is the greatest poem in all of the Psalter and the greatest lyrics in the world. So let's read them. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. But here's the thing, they have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a championing rejoicing to run his course. Verse 6, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise of the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. It is enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. Verse 10, They are more precious than gold. Yes, even than pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Verse 14. May the words of my mouth And this meditation of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Will you pray with me? Jesus, you are the word. Will you speak the word of life to us? As your word shaped and molded and brought forth creation, may it shape and mold new creation. And may it bring out even new creations. Will you save? Will you sanctify? Will you cleanse? For it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the intent of God's word, the importance of God's word, the intervention of God's word, and then the invocation of man in response to God's Word. So let's tackle number one, the intent of God's Word. So David, he launches his psalm here, and in the first six verses, he tells us about the activity of creation. Now here's what he's going to do. He's going to tell us what creation does how creation does it, and where creation does it. So let's just look at those three things. So what creation does? Well, we see at the very beginning that the heavens, creation, what? Declares the glory of God. Now, what does the word declare means? It means to announce. It means to tell. It means to make known. But then it also, David also tells us that, that the heavens proclaim what is proclaimed? Well, it's basically a synonym of declared, to announce, to make known. So just think about it this way creation is an evangelist. Creation is an evangelist. It declares the glory, it proclaims his handiwork. Glory means weightiness, it means splendor, it means majesty. Handiwork means his work, his creativity, his power, his craftiness. So creation is declaring us who God is and how great he is, how crafty, how ingenious he is. Well, now how does creation do this? So that's what, they, that's what creation does. How does creation do it? I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you asked. We see day after day, day after day, they pour forth speech... And night after night, they reveal knowledge. But but here's the thing, there's no actual words. So creation doesn't have actual words like you and I do. That's what what distinguishes us from creation. Because we actually have words, we can have relationship, but creation by nature isn't in relationship. They are, it is what it is, but in being who it is, they declare and they proclaim. Uh, it's nonverbal. And this nonverbal evangelization of creation, don't miss this, is brought about by faithfully functioning according to its design. Day after day, night after night, creation functions the way God designed it. To function. That's the evangelization of creation. They are doing. It is doing what God intended it to do. And he gives us an example in verse 5 and 6. With the sun. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom is glorious. Coming out of his chamber. Like a champion rejoicing to run his Higher praise than this. And my soul wells up with hallelujah. And then he he belts out into his chorus. Oh, praise him all, his mighty works. There is no language where he cannot be heard. Your song goes out to all of the earth. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. You see, creation is doing what it was designed to do. But to really get the fuller picture here in these six verses, we need to understand the why. We need to understand the why behind the what. Why does creation do that? Well, you've got to go all the way back to Genesis 1 to understand the why. And what is the why? Well, we read in Genesis 1 that God created the heavens and the earth. And then we begin to see God, He goes to work for six days. And every single day that He works, His work is through His Word. And so we see things like God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from the water. And it was so. So He creates the atmosphere. He creates the water. Then we see that God said, let the water under the sky be gathered in one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. Then he said, let land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it. And so day one through three, do not miss this. Day one through three, God creates the environments. He creates the structures in which he is going to put life in it. And so we see in day 4, day 5, day 6, what does he do? He says, let there be lights. God made a greater light to rule the day, lesser lights to rule the night. Day 5, God said, let water team with living creatures and let birds Fly. Then day six, God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The only distinction in day six through God's creation is that he actually forms man from the dust of the ground and actually breathes life into his nostrils. Everything else was created by the word of God. And here's the main principle that we need to realize is that God's word always ends with God's glory God's word always ends with God's glory you see the impetus behind creation is to glorify God why because God spoke the world into existence see uh, every board game has an objective now this is this is so this is so incredible I didn't even know this because it's been so long since I played the game of life. But here we go. We we got the game of life, game guide, object. I tell you on the front cover what the object is. Hit the road for a roller coaster life of adventure, family, unexpected surprises, and pets. The player with the most money at the end of the game wins. There's your object. Now, you know the, the the sad reality is many play the American life that way, but nevertheless, the game of life here, there's the object. You want to be the player that has the most money at the end of the game. Listen, the object of life. The very object and aim of our breath is the glory of God. You see, we cannot play and we certainly cannot win at the game of life if we don't know the objective. Now, some of you are thinking, well, uh, Josh, I mean, that's about creation, declaring God's glory. Uh, Does the Bible have anything to say about people declaring God's glory? Well, that's a good question, too, but I'll, I'll tell you. Psalm 96. Here's what the psalmist writes. Declare God's glory among the nations, His marvelous deeds among all peoples. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. That is the object and the aim of life, the glory of God. So the intent of God's word is for us to glorify Him. Number two. The importance of God's word, verses 7 through 10. Now, David in verses 7 through 10 describes the importance of God's word, namely for human beings. Now, in in these verses, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see six synonyms for God's word. Seven characteristics of God's word and seven effects of God's word. Now, we ain't gonna say on, on these long because it could be a little daunting. You're like, oh my gosh, you're go through all of that. No, let's just six synonyms, six characteristics, or seven characteristics and seven effects. So, here's the six synonyms of God's word. We see that God's word is the instruction or the law of the Lord, the testimony or the witness of the Lord, the precepts or the directions of the Lord, the commands of the Lord the fear or the reverence of the Lord the ordinances or the rules or the judgments of the Lord those are six synonyms now here's what we can take from these six synonyms so from these six synonyms we can conclude now don't, do not miss this we can conclude that God's word is instructional is testimonial is directional is fearful is judicial, and just to speak with, you know, and just to continue the ul, it's dictatorial, dictatorial, meaning authoritative. I know, I'm just weird like that. That's just how my mind thinks. But, but don't miss it. Instructional, testimonial, directional, fearful, judicial, dictatorial. Now, based upon these descriptions, don't miss it. Based upon these descriptions, God's Word isn't light, it's heavy. Like, God's Word are not suggestions. They're they're not pieces of advice. They, They are things that you should listen to. These descriptions mean you should listen. These descriptions mean you should listen. These descriptions mean you should listen. Say it with me. These descriptions mean you should listen. That's it. Now, however, our culture may not see God's Word as heavy or as words they should listen to. Now, why? Why would our culture not want to listen to these words? At least three reasons. Let me give them to you really quickly. Number one, our culture is one that has lost respect for authority. So over the last few decades, here's what we can see. And, and we, you, you see it in the research. We've lost authority. We've, we've lost respect for our parents. And basically what has happened is that kids kind of wake, w- woke up to the reality their parents aren't, aren't all they, you know, set out to be, right? And they failed them. Maybe they promised them things and it just never came through or well, whatever it may be. But, but, but parents. Uh, then you have Politicians. All right, so after two hundred and fifty years, yes, politicians, many of them, hey, you know, they're they're good guys, you know, guys women, you know, but a lot of times they, they they overpromise and underdeliver. Okay, like we're in this election season, I'm telling you, Biden and Trump, they're promising us the moon, and all they're going to be able to deliver us is a moon pie. It, it, it might be a moon, but it's just going to be a moon pie. They overpromise, underdeliver, and the cycle makes us lose respect for authority. Uh, another one uh, would be uh, pastors and priest uh, i mean it's amazing only we have a likability rating of like 35 or 37 percent it continues to decline so basically people are realizing that pastors and priests they're not supermen or superwomen huh i could have told you that but you know people are waking up to that reality and then even now in the day that we live in police we're not going to listen to them We're going to defund them. Why? Because we have lost respect. We have lost authority. They've lost authority in our eyes. So so our culture is one that has lost respect, respect for authority. Second, our culture is one where everyone is an expert. Facebook, oh my gosh. Everybody's an expert on Facebook. Everybody's an expert on politics and masks. Uh, Twitter. Everyone is a, 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 an expert on on critical race theory and QAnon. I mean, everybody. Everybody is an expert. You're like, oh, good night. I was, I, you know, I, I was, I was torturing myself in watching both the the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention because I just wanted to. I want to know what's going on in culture and politics so that so I can help the church engage. But. But I, I cannot get this, this scene out of my head, or this segment from the DNC, where Billy eyelash gets up there, 18 years old in all of her glory, and she's going to tell she is going to tell all Americans how she thinks Donald Trump is ruining this country. I'm like, "You're 18 years old." But she's an expert, undoubtedly. And then our, our culture is highly individualistic and autonomous. Do you realize, I mean, you, 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 we, we all do this, right? We don't really search for the truth. We search with what will support us. I mean, you see that on Twitter. You see that on Facebook. You're not, you're not really looking. Americans aren't really looking for the truth. They're looking for something to benefit them. They're looking for something to side with them. Why? Because it's all about themselves. It's all about their autonomy. And so, the net effect of our culture is that they come to see words, words from authorities, and including God as suggestions, advice, recommendations, thoughts, ideas, and personal feelings. But notice the seven characteristics that David prescribes to God God's word is perfect, it means blameless, without fault. Many denominations and churches say it's inerrant, without error. God's Word is trustworthy, sure, reliable. It is right. That word right means it's the measuring stick. It means you begin with God's Word and then you can bring in Immanuel Kant. You don't bring in Immanuel Kant and then go to God's Word. No, God's Word is the measuring stick for all of knowledge and understanding. It's radiant, it's clear, it's pure, it's clean, it's firm, it's true, it's durable, it stands the test of time. Think about it this way, is that God's Word is not just for a particular people in a particular place in a particular time, but God's Word is for all people in all places at all times. It stands the test of time. And then it's righteous, it's right standing, it is just. Those are the characteristics of God's word. Please do tell me, is there anything under the face of the sun, instructionally for life, that has those descriptions? No. But then, oh, this is so good. Come here. Seven effects of God's word. Seven effects. Don't miss this. Seven effects. Number one, it refreshes the soul. Now, the fact that he says it refreshes the soul means our soul needs to be refreshed, needs to be revived. Uh, another definition of reviving could mean comeback. Oh, I love the word comeback. Wow, well, because we need a comeback. Of humanity, and the only way humanity can have a comeback is if they listen and obey God's word. It refreshes the soul, it revives the soul, it makes wise the simple. I remember I was called into the ministry. At the age of 15, I was preaching even before then, and I, I would remember like my first message ever in, in a church was 45 minutes long, and it was titled, Are You in the Big Fish? Uh, about Jonah. And I remember people coming up to me like, Man, you're just, you're wise, you're mature beyond your years. Now, let me ask you this Was it really me that was really mature beyond the years? Absolutely not, because if you really saw me behind the scenes, I'd still a 15 year old kid in punk, all right, who just loved Jesus, okay? But the reason why they could say that is because I dealt with God's Word. See, God's Word makes the simple wise. It gives joy to the heart. It doesn't bring sorrow. It doesn't bring resentment. It brings joy. It gives light to the eyes. It means it gives direction. It gives discernment. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It endures forever. It's... this. It's more precious than gold. So think about it this way. Object, object of this game of life, make all the money you can. And here's what David is saying. He's like, if you had the option of making all the money you can versus had the option of just listening and basking in the words of God. Pick that, pick that one right there because it's more desirable than gold. That's what he's going to say. And then this, this one's good too. Sweeter than honey. That, that effect confirms. I mean, confounded C.S. Lewis. See, he could understand how God's promises, how God's mercies could be sweeter than honey. But he couldn't understand how God's laws, God's commands could be sweeter than honey. Like, like Because there are things about God's word and God's law and God's commands as human beings we, we don't like. Well, we don't want to love our enemy. Well, we don't want to wait to give ourselves sexually until we get married. But you know, I mean, okay, okay. But his law, his commands are sweeter than honey. I think about. I don't like vegetables, like green peas, green beans. Carrots, eh, Brussels sprouts. I just loathe Brussels sprouts. But many times, and, and you might like that stuff, but I would say for the most part, Americans, if they had their choice of like feasting on vegetables or, or feasting on blueberry fritters from stands, donuts, and cheesecake and, and fruit loops with with, with again w- without consequences, they're, they're gonna pick that. Why? Because we love sugar. But what David is saying is that if you, if you listen and obey God's word, his command is going, like, going to taste like a blueberry fritter from Stan's Donuts every time. See, so yeah, God's word not only attends for you to do something for God, God's word also does something for you. See, see, God's word doesn't just want to stop with our declaration of his glory. But his word actually does something for us. You see, God's word provides the functions of life for you to flourish in life. God's word provides the functions of life for you to flourish in life. Um. Again, I could go through here and I could give you all of the details of how to play this game. We could read them. It actually has step one, step two, step three, step four. I mean, it's very clear. And that's how we're going to play the game to reach our objective. Now, here's a snapshot of American life right now. 20, over 23 million are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Uh, We are addicted to screens, binge-watching everything under the sun. Did you know that teenagers spend nine hours or more on their screens every day? Uh, Many Americans are in debt up to their eyeballs with no financial security, living paycheck to paycheck. Many are sexually broken either by addiction or by identity. They are dissatisfied at work, unfulfilled at life, lonely, depressed, and unhappy. Many are from broken homes, and we are politically divided. I'm just giving you the snapshot of American life, and it doesn't look like it's functioning well. In fact, it looks very dysfunctional. In fact, there's not a lot of flourishing going on in America. Now, here's the, here's the thing. We, we, we still tout, and in some sense, rightfully so, comparatively, that we are a great nation compared to others. And it is. And we ought to be blessed to live here. But when you take in these snapshots of how we are doing as individuals living out this thing called life, well, we're not really that effective. We might have a lot of money. We might have a lot of science. And we might have a lot of smart people. But we haven't figured out a way to flourish in life. And so when we look at America, we have a lot of Americans with hurts, heartaches, hang-ups, and habits with a lot of hatred. And then if you look at churches, churches are really no different. Most churches are plateaued or declining now because of covid many churches will close their doors and here's the thing about the word if you listen to the word and do what it says there will be flourishing and functionality in life number three and i'm not going to spend too long on number three but but here here it is the intervention of god's word now the intervention of god's word we we see verse 11 through 13 by them your servant is warned In keeping them there is great reward, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me, then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. I mean, basically what David is saying is that we're all prone to wonder. We're prone to wonder intentionally and even unintentionally. Meaning that we engage in sin unintentionally and intentionally intentionally. And what David is saying is that God's word acts as this convicting mechanism to bring us back. Now, it reminds me of, uh, reminds me of the game Taboo. Anybody ever played the game Taboo? All right. So it, 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 it's, it's this game where you have a card and you're on teams and you have a word that, the, that your team needs to guess, but there are like five words that you cannot say. So let's say that you're trying to get people to you know, say cat. Well, and one of the five words is like feline. You can't say that. And if you do say that, guess what you get? You get buzzed. Now, I love that. I love the buzzer because I love the one having the buzzer, especially when I'm playing a game like that with my mom because she's going to read the five words on the list every time. You're going to be like, can't say it, can't say it. See, that's what God's word, that's what God's word does. Oh, man, look at her. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I tell you that Joe Biden. Love your enemies. That Donald Trump. Well, you you got buzzed before you even said Trump because I knew what you were thinking. Man, uh, I tell you what, I I just got to respond to her on Facebook. She's wrong. Do nothing out of anger. You see, God's word, it will buzz us. If you listen, if you're in tune, if you're seeking to play the game according to God, it's going to buzz you. And so that's what David is saying here. Like, i got to have your word speaking in it. And then the last one, oh, I've been waiting for this one. Number four, the invocation as a result of listening to God's word. The NIV says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now, the ESV and other translations have a slight different, a slightly different translation. Like the ESV says, let the words of my mouth And the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So the question is, is David referring to these words? Or is he just referring to the words? Is it specific or general? Well, I tend to lean more towards the general, but here's the thing. It doesn't really change the meaning. But here's what's cool about David's invocation. The entire chapter is about God's word. It's about God's word. See, God spoke creation into existence, and now now creation is declaring the glory of God, His weight, His splendor, His majesty. It's about the Word of God, how it instructs, how it directs, how it gives us precepts and ordinances and commands and brings life to us and sweetness. And then God's Word intervenes. and, and, And David's even asking, well, will your Word intervene? But here now, David wraps up this psalm and says, May the words of my mouth. Now he speaks. Don't miss this. Here's the principle when God speaks to us, he invites us to speak back to him. When God speaks to us, he invites us into this life to speak back to him. That's incredible. Oh, David is now in a relationship with the one who created life. Now, uh, this is why it's so important. And it's in this relationship, David wants to please God. That's why relationship is so important. See, see, here's the thing. If you attempt, please hear me, do not miss this church. If you attempt to obey God's word, depart or separate from a relationship, that's religion. Also, Any attempt to obey God's word apart from a relationship will either lead to strict adherence to what you read or a gravitational pull away from what you read because you will see it as too restrictive, too limiting, too archaic, too demanding. See, that's why you need to be in this relationship. It's the relationship that is a key to obedience. And because David sees this as a relationship, he wants to please God. Now, how does he plan on doing that? Well, first of all, he wants his entire life to be pleasing. Heart of mouth. See, See, David knows that whatever happens in the meditation of the heart will pour forth from the mouth. And so he wants to make sure that his entire life in the heart from the heart to the mouth is pleasing to God. So he wants to make sure every single area and every single moment pleases God. Second, he sees his meditation and words as sacrifices. Now this is important because he wants everything that he does, everything he thinks, everything he does, everything he says, to be seen as sacrifices on the altar for God's glory. So may the words of my mouth, meditation, in my heart be pleasing. May they rise and may they please you, Lord. And then he says, uh, the key to our mouths and our hearts being acceptable to God is God being our rock and redeemer. You see, he uses the word Lord My rock and my redeemer. That word Lord is the covenant word Yahweh. My God. My God. My rock, my redeemer. The reason why he was able to have a relationship with God is because God was the redeemer. He purchased his people from slavery. He also sustained them by providing for them in the wilderness and in their life. He was their rock. Now here's what's so interesting for us. We know that these are just foreshadowings of when Jesus would come. That Jesus is the ultimate redeemer. Jesus is the ultimate rock. See, Jesus is the ultimate one who saved his people from their enslavement to sin. He is their rock that that sustains them, that empowers them. And how does he do it? By sending us his spirit. But here's what's so cool about Jesus. We also read in John 1 that he is the Logos. He is the Word of God. See, John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14, became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. The glory of the only begotten Son of God. And it is in Jesus now, don't miss this, church, it is in Jesus now, based upon what we read in the New Testament, because He is the Logos, He is speaking new creation into existence through what we would call the good news, that the good news is that King Jesus, the one who created the world, who created all creation, who saw, who saw creation be ripped away by sin he came down to say you know what, I'm going to repair creation but not only am I going to repair it, I'm going to restore it, I'm going to speak new creation to existence because I am the word of God, I am perfect, I am blameless, I am infallible, I am inerrant, I am pure, I am reliable I am trustworthy I am God and I will die for the sin of the world and I will bridge this gap between old creation and new creation and anyone who listens to my words that I am king I am savior I am lord he shall pass from darkness into the marvelous light he shall walk in my light and he will find new and abundant life because I am the creator So, church, if we want to be invincible, you have got to make sure that everything revolves around this, the glory of King Jesus. And I will say this, uh, Wheaton Bible, Tri-Village, you're, we're, we're in transition, right? We've got new campus pastor praying for a pastor search team. We're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of an election. We're in the midst of heated racial tensions throughout America. Please, 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 you've got to get yourself out of the center, put Jesus in the center so that we can revolve around him. Everything that we do revolve around King Jesus because he's the only one that would sustain us through these transitions. He's the only one that's going to sustain us through the pandemic. He's the only one. Why? Because he's invincible. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray that we would make you the center of our lives that we would listen to you, that we would live by your words. You are the word of God. You speak new creation into existence. So, Father, may we live out this new creation as the people of God. For those who are listening here or online, they've never opened up the word of God, just like I've never opened up settlers of Catan. May the Spirit speak to them, where for the first time they would respond to your word by repenting of their sin, claiming you as king, as Lord, as rock, as redeemer of their life. For it's in your name we pray, O great God and King. Amen.